Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're finally getting to chapter 2. We spent two weeks on chapter 1 of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which talked about the scriptures, and it was important that we spent two weeks on the Bible, because the Bible is the foundation for everything else that we study. And so I want to start tonight with a quote by A.W. Tozer. Um, I think it's an interesting quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about that quote? Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. There are a lot of misconceptions out there about who God is. Would you agree? A lot of people have some weird ideas. And so what this chapter does, chapter 2, there's only three paragraphs, and paragraph 1 is very long. Um, It lays forth for us just some key attributes of God, who God is, what he does, and also it attempts to define the Trinity. So we have a lot of ground to cover tonight, and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with is just scripture that supports these things. So... Let us read paragraph one. I did bring my glasses. And this would be on page, I have it on my sheet here, but I'll read it from here just so we make sure we're all in the same place. It would be on page 14. And remember this, it kind of looks like verses, but two is paragraph two, or chapter two, paragraph one. So is everybody there? Okay, so this is a long statement about God. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He's most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he's perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Okay, that's, that's a long paragraph, but what we find out in this paragraph is that if you can kind of distill it down, there are eight characteristics or attributes of God that this paragraph, I kind of broke it up in eight. Okay, So let's look at these eight. And when we talk about attributes of God, let me just kind of explain. God is reveals himself to us in the Bible in different ways, with different attributes, okay? And these aren't to be pitted one against the other. So for example, God is not more loving than he is more just or more just than he's loving. All of the attributes make up the totality of who God is. So he's all of these at the same time. That's hard for us to imagine because we tend to compartmentalize things and we make things higher or lesser. That's not true for God. These are all of God's being 
described the way the scripture describes it. So let's look at these eight. Here's number one. And this is this may be a, like a, a no-brainer, but singularity. And what I mean by singularity is the very first sentence says, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. There is only one God. Now, when we go to India on our trips from time to time, we encounter a culture that has multiple gods. What is the word for multiple gods? You guys know what the official word is? Polytheism, many, many different gods, okay? And remember the Canaanite gods and all the different Old Testament gods, there's only one true living God. And so let's look at some scriptures that tell us that there's only one true living God. And this is the most important one, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. one. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, when it says one there, it can mean one of two things. God is numerically one, in like that there's only one God, not two or three. Or it can also mean there's only one and only God. He's the only God. He's the one and, that's why it says the one and only. He's one and he's the only God. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom all things are and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And Paul's saying there's a lot of so-called gods in the earth. There's a lot of idols people worship. But there's really only one true God. Now, it's interesting because he says our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Trinity. So let me just throw it out there. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Father God? Yes. Are they the same person? No. Do they share the same essence as God? Yes. We'll get to that when we get to the Trinity. Okay? So, God is not an impersonal force. God is not a philosophical concept. But he's a living being. So, let me ask you, what do you think is the greatest sin that humans can commit? The greatest sin. Well, there's a lot of sins out there. And we, and we maybe could argue about this, but what do you think is the greatest sin? Not acknowledging God. Denying God, not acknowledging God. You were in staff meeting, so you can't answer this. So I'm not sure you can. What, what did you say? It's idolatry. Okay, so idolatry at its core is basically breaking the first commandment because idolatry is saying you're having another God besides God. So idolatry is really the root of all other gods. I mean, all other, all other sins. Um, you can trace pride to idolatry. You can trace selfishness to idolatry. Um, R.C. Sproul says this, whether God is replaced by crass, brutish idols fashioned out of stone and metal, or he's redefined by philosophical concepts, idolatry means that God is stripped of his attributes. When you, when you create an idol, you're basically stripping. Now, you can't do that because he's God, but you're basically saying, I don't want God to be God. I want to worship something else. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This is a passage of scripture that does teach for us idolatry. 
and how God responds to idolatry and what people have done in their sin. So Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We could, we could probably spend a lot of time on this particular passage of Scripture, but let, let's just read it together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's stop right there. What does it mean to suppress something? To hold it down. To hold, to push it away. What does Paul say they're pushing away? The truth. The truth, the truth about what? I mean, he's going to continue to find that. So people are pushing down the truth because they don't want to accept it. What are they pushing down? What are they suppressing? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay, how, how, how do we know that? We look up at the heavens, we look up at the sky, we look at the sunset, we look at the ocean, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and here's the key term, exchanged the glory of God for the immortal God, or the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because there's the word again, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Twice, Paul says they exchanged something. First, he says they exchanged the glory of God for created things. Second, he says they exchanged the truth of God for created things. What does it mean to make an exchange? What do you, what, what, why is that word important, exchange? Substitute. What, 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 is, what is Paul basically saying? Instead of having the real God, the living God, the one true God, people suppress that knowledge because they know there's a God and they would rather have a substitute whether that's an idol they've created in their mind or an idol they've created with their hands, they've traded in the truth about God, the glory of God, for something that's an idol. And they haven't worshipped God. Now, that's, that's, that's the ultimate in sin. You're basically saying, I don't want God. I'd rather have something else, even though I know there's a God. I think I should, did I share the Nietzsche quote with you guys? Okay, so Frederick Nietzsche. He was the philosopher who said God is dead. He kind of influenced Hitler. He made this statement. Okay, and this, this statement may take you back. I may have shared this with you before. He said, if there is a God, I cannot stand not to be that God. Okay, I'll say it again. If there is a God, I can't stand not to be that God. So he was an atheist. He would be, he would yeah, he was an atheist. He said, if there's a God, which I don't believe there is a God, but if there is a God, I want to be that God. <laughs> Good, luck. Good luck, okay. So idolatry is basically exchanging the glory of the one true and living God for created things. Whether those are things you fashion, none of us are going to probably go in our backyard and fashion a wooden idol and bow down to it. But in our culture, a lot of people fashion idols in their imaginations with what they think God is. Have you ever heard somebody say, to me, God is, it's nothing compared to what the scripture says. Or my God would never, da, 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 da. And it's like, where'd you get that? Well, it's just kind of how I feel about God. Well, do you have scripture to support that? No, but it just doesn't feel right. 
That, that's, that's idolatry. So, Psalm 86.10 says, You are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You alone are God. Isaiah 37.20. There's a lot of scripture tonight, guys, so it's like all over the place. Isaiah 37.20. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. So truth number one, attribute number one in the confession is that it's what we call singularity. There's only one true and living God who deserves all of our worship. Okay, the second attribute is probably something that you maybe have never heard before. It's a theological term that you probably have, maybe have not heard in churches, but it's the word aseity. Okay, aseity. It's Latin and it means from himself. Okay, so let's read where it says here in your confession, again on page 14, the second sentence, he is self-existent and infinite in being in perfection. He is self-existent. Now think about that for a moment. Where we understand God's self-existence is in the term Yahweh. So when you see the term Yahweh, in the Old Testament, it's L-O-R-D in all capitals. And Yahweh, the way it's pronounced, sounds very similar to what God told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. What did, what did God say his name was? Moses says, that, hey, you're sending me to go down to Egypt. And if I go down there and say, God sent me, and they say, what's God's name? God says, okay, I'll tell you what my name is. So what, what does he say? Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am sounds very similar to Yahweh. Now, that's a really interesting word, I am, and how you can translate it in the original language. You can really translate it three ways, and I think all of them are accurate. First, you could translate it as, I have always been as I've always been. That emphasizes God having no beginning. He's always existed. I have always been who I've always been. Past tense, I've always been God. You can translate it secondly, I am who I am, meaning that God alone defines who he is. God has no limits. He can't be restrained. God's free to do whatever he wants. Or you could translate it thirdly, I will be who I will be, which stresses that God will act in the future and continue to exist from everlasting to everlasting. Now, who here can say, I am, period, and be the ultimate definer of reality? Anybody? There's limitations to all of us, okay? I am Sean Cole. I am six foot two. I am blonde. I am Don's husband. Okay, I can't just stand up here and say, I am. That I am. I don't define reality. I've not always existed. I mean, there's a lot of things I can't do. Can I fly? No, no matter how hard I think I can. Can, can I dunk like Michael Jordan or... LeBron James, no, I wish I had the hops to be able to do that. Maybe back in high school I could, but there's some things I can't do. So what 
God being I am means, think, I want you to think of it this way. It's the God who has no needs. God has no needs. Does God need anything? Is God a needy God? No. He's the God with no needs. Now we have needs, but God has no needs. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you're the same, and your years have no end. God's the creator. He has no beginning. He has no end. Now, when Paul was at Athens, and he was up at Mars Hill, and he was confronting the unknown God and the, um, the Athenian philosophers, he said this in Acts 17, 24, and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God has no needs. He's the self-existent. So a saity means God is self-existent. He's the I am. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am. I am the first. I am the last. I am. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He's the living and true God. He is the I am. And then John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. What does it mean that God has life in himself? Can you give life to yourself? No, who created life? God. Who created God? Many years ago, there was a girl, she's a grown, she's, well, I think she's in probably a senior in high school now, but she, she used to always come up almost every Sunday when she was in elementary school, and she would have this question. I've got a question, Pastor Sean. Okay. Where did God come from? Who created God? I'm like, nobody created God. What? Nobody created God. He's always existed. Well, how, how can that happen? I said, well, you were born, and there was a certain point where you came, in, you came into existence. God's never, there was never a point in time where God came into existence. He's always been. Now, it's hard for our minds to think of we can think of eternity forward, can't we? Because we're linear thinkers. Can we think of eternity backwards? <laughs> that there never was a beginning. For us, there's always a beginning. For God, there never was a beginning. He's always been. He, he's got life in himself. He is the one true God. Which leads to the third truth tonight. Okay, you're like, my mind's about to be blown here. <laughs> so here's the tr truth number three, incomprehensibility. His essence cannot be understood by anyone other than himself. Incomprehensible means we really can't fully understand God. Now, are there things God has chosen to show us that we can't understand? Yes. Can we fully understand? How many times have you asked the question, why? God, why did this happen? God, why did you allow this to happen? God, why did, why did this happen? Is God obligated to answer for you? Why? No. Does God have freedom to do what he wants? Yes. 
Are we? And here's a question, and there's some debate about this. And I don't know if I can answer it, but I'm going to throw it out there. Do you think that even in heaven, when we have been glorified with our perfect bodies, we will fully know everything there is to know about God in heaven? You all are shaking your heads like, no. I think even though we're in heaven, there's still the creature-created separation. I mean, we're going to know a whole lot more than we know now because, we, you know, because we're going to be in heaven with God. But, I mean, I, I can't prove it, but I, I think that there's still that holiness about God that he, even in heaven, we're not going to fully know everything there is to know about him. I don't think we're going to care. And we're, probably, and we're not going to care. Yeah, you're not going to be sitting there like, oh, man, I am so frustrated that I don't want to think about God. Are you going to be frustrated in heaven? No. Are you going to be worried that the guy next to you knows more than you? No, because you're going to be in a perfect state of knowledge and you're going to be in ultimate joy. And so, yeah, the point is you're not going to care. Um, so I like what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. And he starts, you got you to say it with me. How does he start? Oh. oh. You normally start a sermon sentence with O? How do you start? Why do you start a sentence with O? Why would you start a sentence with O? The wonder. Oh. Think about this voice. You can say, oh. 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 I mean, think about it. I mean, I don't know exactly how Paul did it, but he's like, oh, and then listen to what he says. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It's like, oh, when I stop and think about who God is, I can't even imagine. And so Paul asks three rhetorical questions. And when you ask a rhetorical question, the answer that you're going to get back from Paul, the answer is going to be nobody. Okay, so here's the first question. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody know God's mind? You can't even read your husband or your wife's mind half the time. Now, your wives wish they were, you were a mind reader, sometimes as a husband, but I'm just like, or your kids... We can't even read the minds of humans. So how are we ever going to know the mind of the Lord? So Isaiah 40, 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? And then I love Job 26, 14. Like if, if you're looking at the night sky, Dawn, my wife, is really big into astronomy and she loves looking at um, the planets. And so Job 26, 14 says, Behold, and he's talking about the sky. These are but the outskirts of his ways and how small a whisper do we hear of him but the thunder of his power who can understand what job is saying is like if you just look up at the night sky and see all the stars that's just a smidgen of who god is it's a whisper and so we can't understand god we don't know the mind of god second question is okay who's ever been given god advice as his counselor Hey, God, come to the counseling office. I got to give you some advice on how to do some things. I, I really don't like the way you're doing stuff, so let me give you some counsel. Anybody give God advice? Well, maybe you have. You probably try to give God advice. Have you done? Yeah, suggestions like, okay. Yeah. You, you, you can't. You may try. God, here's how I really think you should do it. Let me tell you how to run my life. Or let me tell you how to do that. You can try, but it's not going to be successful. And then the third question is, can you ever repay God for his grace? Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? 
Whatever, whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. That's God speaking. So, God is, he can't fully be understood. He can be understood, but not fully understood. Exodus 15, and the kids are agreeing with me. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And what's the answer to that rhetorical question? Who's like you? Nobody. Nobody. Okay, Job 11. A lot of these passages come out of Job. Job 11, 7 through 9. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Can you, can you find out things about God? No, you can't. So God is the one true living God. That's number one. God is the I am, the self-existent God, the aseity of God. Number three, he's the incomprehensible God. But number four, he's spiritual. And what I mean by spiritual is that God is spirit. He's perfectly pure spirit. Let me get this back out again. Let's go back to page... 14. So this is after footnote number three there. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts. Body parts are changeable emotions. He alone has immortality dwelling in light that no one can approach. Okay. So he is spirit. So question. When we get to this when we talk about the Trinity. Does God the Father have a body? No. Does God the Holy Spirit have a body? Does Jesus the Son have a body? Yes. Okay. So God the Father is spirit in the sense that he does not, he's not contained in, in human parts. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, is the only one with a body. And Jesus tells the woman at the well that. Remember what he said in John 4, 24? God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So remember last week when I talked about Joseph Smith being out in the woods and he received the golden tablets and God the Father showed up to him in a body and Jesus showed up to him in a body? What should you, what should you do right then when somebody says God the Father showed up to me in a body? What, what should you say? You're, you're either smoking some loco weed or you've got some bad bad theology there because that's is what I'm I just I heard a good word for pot today. Some of that. This is all totally off the line. This is totally off. Have you ever heard it being called the devil's lettuce? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Totally off the subject. But. Anyway. So so and so so God is not made up of pre-existing parts. Um, it's kind of like this. It's not like God is like okay, he's one part holy. He, like it's like like you're in you're in a you're in a you're in a kitchen and you're cooking up ingredients and so you got one part salt, one part butter, one part flour. It's not like God, okay, he's one part holy and one, all these parts come together to make up the whole. That's not what we're saying. God doesn't have parts cuz he's not made up of parts. He's he's spirit, he's infinite. And God does not have changeable emotions. Now this is a kind of a controversial one. When it says God does not have changeable emotions, let me tell you what that means and what that does not mean. Okay? What it means is this. God does not experience mood swings 
or become depressed because that would mean a change in God from something greater to something lesser. Okay? Does God get disappointed? Does God get frustrated? He gets angry. He gets angry. Okay. So, this does not mean, what this, okay, what it does not mean is that God doesn't express care or God is not loving or God does not express affection for his creation. What it means is that God is not worked on outside and can be manipulated by our emotions to change in his emotion. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it would be like, if I wanted my wife to do something for me, I could sweet talk her and try to manipulate her to have a certain outcome and act upon her to change her mood. Okay, humans can do that to humans, right? Can a human do that to God? Okay, you can't manipulate God to change his emotions to benefit you in some way where he can be acted upon to change because that would mean, if God could change, that would mean that there was something different in him that went from either greater to less or lesser to greater, which means that, that God would not be infinite, holy. I know, I know this is kind of deep into the water, okay? So God does express anger. God does express love. But we have to understand that those emotions are perfect. They're holy. They're always consistent with his character. And, and it's not like you can manipulate God to feel a certain way based upon how you do stuff. So let me ask you a question. If you sin, does God know you're going to sin? Does he already know the outcome before it happens? So is God surprised when you do it? So God already knows the outcome. So it's not like God's like, oh, wow, that took me off guard and I didn't know what was going to happen there. I'm really disappointed now. I didn't know what they were going to do and now they did and I'm disappointed. That's kind of what we're saying there. Okay. You guys ready to move on? That's kind of deep into the water. Okay. It also says there that God dwells in unapproachable light. Now, we could go to Revelation chapter 5 and read, I mean, Revelation chapter 4 and read about the throne room and how God does dwell in unapproachable light, but we won't go there. We'll do go to a few places in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1.17 just says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's the immortal, invisible, only God. So a lot of this theology and the confessions coming from these statements that we see in the scripture. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. Which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Has anybody ever seen God the Father? Remember the Israelites when they were at Mount Sinai and God spoke to them out of the, out of the, out of the, the uh, earthquake and the, and the lightning? God said to them, when I appeared to you at Mount Sinai, you only heard my voice. You could not see me. And you can't see God because he is spirit or, or, or the Shekinah glory. Remember what Moses said? Show me your glory which is kind of an amazing request because Moses had already seen the parting of the Red Sea. He had already seen the manna and the quail. He had already seen all these things. But he's like, God, I want to see your glory. And what does God say? 
You can't handle the truth. <laughs> okay? You guys remember that? Too? I mean, you can't handle the truth. So, that's not sort of what God said. So, uh, Exodus 33, 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to him, I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Now, don't be confused there when it says face because what did we just say? Does God literally have a physical face? No, it's more of a metaphor to say the glory and brilliant shining of God. If, you were, if Moses were to see that, it would kill him. If, you were, if a human were to see the full God, glory of God on display, it would literally kill him. Now, you guys remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark? That last scene where they take the Ark off and the, and the, and the um, Nazi's face melts off. Now, that's Steven Spielberg, but I don't know if that's that far off in the sense of an unholy person seeing the full glory of God, it, it would be unbearable without Jesus as your mediator. Okay. I'm not saying Steven Spielberg is theologically accurate, so don't go home saying, Pastor Sean said Steven Spielberg in Raiders of the Lost Ark is, is good theology. No, it's Hollywood, but it is kind of interesting. So, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He's made him known. We'll come back to that. That's how we're going to end tonight. But I just want to show you that no one's ever seen God, but Jesus has made God known. Okay. All right, so number five. He is eternal. So he's the unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfect, the wise, holy, free, completely absolute. Okay. He is unchangeable. Another word for that is immutable. So does God change? No. And how do we know that? Because he says it, okay? Numbers 23, 19. And, and, and by the way, let me just state something here on the board. Sometimes the Bible teaches what God is by what we would call negation. What do you think the word negation means? What he's not. What? So sometimes the Bible teaches a truth about who God is by telling you what he's not. Okay? So by negation. God is not this. Therefore, he is this. So we can get some good truths about who God is by what, he, by what he's not. So this is kind of one of those not. Okay, so Numbers 23, 19. God is not, what? Man, that he should lie. Do men lie? Okay, can God, so then if God's not a man, then he should lie. So the implication is, can God lie? No. Or son of man, that he should change his mind. Do we change our mind all the time? Does God change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So by saying what God is not, God is not a man who lies. God is not a man who changes his mind. Therefore, we can say by positive, God cannot lie. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. He's unchanging. Okay. Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not, what? Change. change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And James 1.17 
Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. I think the NIV, which is why I grew up learning, it says he doesn't shift like the shadows. But what happens with shadows? They change, don't they? Depending on the direction of the sun. Sometimes your shadow is long. Sometimes it's short. Your shadow, but God doesn't change. He doesn't shift like the shadows. Okay. Now, it says the immensity of God. That's an old word. When you think of the word immense, what do you think of? Huge. That's huge. God must be huge. Or as Donald Trump would say, you, what is it? Huge. <laughs> God must be huge. Well, that's just an old way of saying the word that we would probably understand more in our language would be om, omnipresence. God is what? Everywhere present. He's, he's in all places at all times. Okay. So that's hard to think about, right? If he's spirit, he's all places at all times. Does that scare you or does that comfort you? Depends on what you're up to. <laughs> Depends on what you're up to. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good answer. Okay. Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less a house that I've built. Okay. This is when Solomon's building the temple. He's like, even if we built the temple, it's not going to hold you, God. Because even the highest heaven can't hold you because you're everywhere present all the time. So God is immense. God is everywhere present. He's holy. Isaiah 6.3, And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the, host, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And one of the things I like that the confession says, and I'm going to ask you guys what, what you think it means, and I'll give you a scripture to, to tell you what I think it, it means. It says there, this is kind of halfway through that paragraph. So it says, um, after, after footnote number 10, you see footnote number 10? Perfectly wise, holy, free. What does that mean that God is holy, free, or completely free? What does that mean? No rules. I mean, he, he is the rule. Okay. He gets to decide exactly what. Okay. Does. Okay. He is free to do whatever he wants to do with no constraints. Can anyone say to God, "No, you can't do that." I mean, you, you can try. I mean, can anybody successfully say to God, "Can anybody hold God back? Can anybody stop God? Can anybody thwart God's plans?" What does it mean to thwart? To put a wrench in, to put to stymie. Okay. One of my favorite verses, Job 42.2. Job, after all that he's been through, says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Can any of God's purposes be thwarted? That leads to number six, sovereignty. So number one, he's the only God. Number two, he's the I am, the self-existent God. Number three, he's the incomprehensible God. Number four, he's spirit. Number five, he is um, eternal, the unchanging eternal God. Number six, he's sovereign. 
Okay, so here it says he works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. God works out all things according to his will for his glory. Okay, so Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. God can do whatever he wants to do. The greatest verse on God's sovereignty, I think, is Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's, there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Okay, what does God do? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God, what does it mean for God to declare the end from the beginning and things not yet to happen? What does it mean that God declares those? It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened. And why is it going to happen? Because he said it is. Okay, he declared it. Does it say God predicted it? Okay, here's something you need to know about the Bible. When God says something, it's going to happen. How did he create? Let there be light. So when God speaks, or when God declares... In God's mind, it's as if it's going to happen. So it's not like God is passively sitting back, taking in knowledge, determining what's going to happen and guessing. It's God actually determines what's going to happen. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just, just thinking if he declares it, that means that... So, and maybe I already said this in a certain way, I don't know, but... So he knows... He, he's, he knows it's going to happen because that is, he's sovereign and that it just hasn't happened yet. Okay. So in other words, he's not predicting. No, he's not he's predicting. He's declaring because. Okay, so let me, yeah, he, so. He already knows. Let me give you two PRE words, okay, that maybe this will help you. Because okay. you, you said the right thing. He's not predicting what's going to happen. He's predetermining what's going to happen. Does that make sense? What's the difference between predicting and predetermining? I can predict. I can predict what the weather's going to do, but do I know, really know? But if you predetermine something to happen, and your God is it going to happen? Okay, so we'll get to this when we get to God's decree. But I'll just kind of lay it out there: whatever God knows is going to happen will happen. Because can God know anything that doesn't happen? <laughs> Everything happens because He wills it. To he wills it to happen. Yes, that's very good. Because he says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Not I might accomplish it, not I may, not I will try. I will accomplish all my purpose. And then Ephesians 1.11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to, and I want you to notice three words here. According to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. I looked up those three Greek words, purpose, counsel, and will. And they all pretty much mean the same thing, but they're three different Greek words. Why would Paul use three words when he could have used one? What's he trying to do? It basically means plan, purpose, will. What is God? God's working out all things according to what? His plan, his purpose, his will. It's like Paul's working overtime to say it is God's sovereign purpose that whatever happens is going to happen and he uses three different words to kind of compound it and, and, and like exclamation point, underline, highlight, or whatever. Okay? Now, these attributes that we looked at are the ones that are like mind-blowing, 
they're the, the big, like, whoa, these, these are hard to grasp. Number seven, I think, is the most easy to grasp because it's the one that we experience. Okay, so number seven is love. God is love. So the, the confession says he's most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Okay, this comes from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. In that same passage of scripture where Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And it's interesting. When God says, I'm not going to show you my glory, instead I'm going to give you my name. Don't you say God says, I'm not going to... You can't see my glory, but I will tell you my name, the Lord. So, so look right here, Isaiah, or Exodus 34, 67. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is God to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, he says it twice, the Lord, the Lord. Okay, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Okay, I call this the credo, or the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is the first time it shows up, but it shows up in Nehemiah, it shows up in Psalms 86, it shows up in Psalm 103, it shows up in um, Joel chapter 2, it shows up in Jonah. This is the one statement about God repeated all throughout the Old Testament where he reveals who he is. Okay, so let's, let's unpack these. The Lord is merciful. Now this imagery of God being merciful really shows a um, parent having compassion towards a helpless baby. It's almost as if God looks down upon us as helpless infants that have nothing to offer and he shows us compassion. It means that we're utterly helpless and God reaches down with this mercy. As a, as a sinner that's in great need, God comes and he rescues us. That's what the word merciful there means. Then it says God is gracious. Okay, Gracious literally means that you can't pay back God, but he chooses to show you grace. What is grace? Is grace something that's, that you deserve? Can you work for it? Can you earn it? Do you deserve it? Is God obligated to give it? No, it's something God chooses freely to give simply because he chooses to freely give it. What do we Oh, What does he owe us? Take it one step further. You can say he owes us nothing, but what does he really owe us? Wrath. Hell. Okay. Sometimes people will say, well, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're undeserving sinners. We're undeserving sinners. Okay, that, that's actually not true. Undeserving makes it sound like we don't deserve anything. What do we really deserve? Hell. You can say, actually, we're hell-deserving sinners. Because un undeserving makes it sound like we're neutral. God chose us to show grace to undeserving sinners as if we don't deserve anything. No, actually, it's way worse than that. You actually deserve hell and wrath and damnation, and God chooses to show you grace anyway. It wasn't that you just didn't deserve anything. You actually deserved wrath, and God chose to show you grace. Number three, he's slow to anger. Literally, he's short and snorting his nose like a horse. Is really what that. So God has a high threshold for our sin. Aren't you thankful that God is slow to anger? He's got a high threshold of patience. You know, as I'm, as I'm going through Judges, 
I'm, I'm kind of finishing up my sermon for Sunday. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to finish it. And we, we get to chapter 8 on Gideon. And I'll give you a little preview. It ends badly for Gideon. He started so well in chapter 6. And it just ends really bad. And you, you go through the book of Judges and you're like, why does God keep putting up with these people? I would have been done with them a long time ago. God is slow to anger. And you look at the Israelites and you're like, well, wow. Think of how the times God's been slow to anger with me. I'm thankful for his patience. All right, then God is abounding in steadfast love. Turn to your neighbor and don't spit on them and say the Hebrew word chesed. It's chesed, okay? Um, hesed. Yeah, you don't spit on people. Yeah, we, we've said hesed for years in this church. Hesed is the deepest, most tenacious, loyal love that God has for his people. It's like the strong, the ESV translates it steadfast love. I think the, the King James calls it loving kindness. It's just the strong, powerful, covenant love, unconditional love that God has for his people. So it's a steadfast love. Um, he swears, literally he swears an oath that he'll keep loving us no matter what. Okay. And then it says the Lord is abounding in faithfulness. God proves that we can count on him. <coughs> He's a strong tower. He's the immovable, steadfast, firm foundation. And then it says the Lord is a forgiving God. What does the Bible say? He takes our sin as far as the east is to the west. Why does he do east to west? as opposed to north and south. North and south meet, right? Well, sort of. East and west don't meet. Another passage says he takes it to the bottom of the sea. Okay, so the Lord is a forgiving God. Okay. So what this seventh attribute says is God is merciful, God is gracious, God is kind. Basically, the overall word is steadfast love, God is loving. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, God because God is love. There's four places where it says God is something. God is love. God is light. I can't remember the third. The other one is God is a consuming fire. Bob Seek knows this because he reminds me of it all the time. If Bob were here tonight, he's like, he always tells me, there's those four things God is you shared one time in men's study. I'm like, I'm glad you remember because I don't. But right here it says God is not love is God, God is love. Okay, now, just in case you know, you're, you're unbalanced here, what does the very last statement of, the, of this first paragraph say? He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he's perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clearly guilty. So the eighth attribute, eighth, eighth attribute of God is justice. He is a just God. He will punish sin. Psalm 5, 5 through 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates sin. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in the whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Do we live in a culture where people really, really elevate the love of God and downplay the justice or wrath of God? My God would never send somebody to hell. 
my God would never condemn an alternative sexual lifestyle because God is love and love is love and God is love and we just so we don't want to overemphasize any of the attributes of God because they're all the totality of who God is. But I think if there's one that tends to not be emphasized in our culture today is the justice or the wrath or the, um, the God is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments and he hates all sin. Now, why is it important to teach that? Because it opens up the door to the gospel, right? Yes, God hates sin and God punishes sin, but if you have a relationship with Christ, those sins are paid for by Jesus, and you can be in a right relationship with this holy God, but it's only by repenting and believing in Jesus that you can have your sins forgiven and be in a right relationship and escape judgment on that final day. But God's not going to lower the bar of his justice just because, you know, we think that he's never going to punish us or whatever. So that is paragraph number one, those eight attributes of God. Okay. Now, paragraph two kind of reiterates a few things, but and, and, and it kind of expounds how much time we're doing good on time. So let's let's read, and I'm gonna I'm gonna not draw out every sentence on this one. I'm just gonna draw out a few things because a lot of this stuff is overlapping. So paragraph two on page fifteen. God has all life, glory, and goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature. He is made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all his creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. He is absolutely holy in all his plans and all his works and all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he's pleased to require of them. Okay, so paragraph two focuses again really on the self-sufficiency of God. It's really a repetition of the aseity of God. God has life in himself. God is the source of all life. God is self-sufficient. God does all things for his glory. God alone is to be exalted. Um, he's, and so you've got like Psalm 148, 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. Psalm 119, 68. You are good. You do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay, so he is sovereign. He is absolutely uh, in control of all things. We don't give him glory. He alone. So we don't give God glory. God is, already has glory. So when the Psalms say, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, what does to, to ascribe the glory to his name mean? Are we, are we giving God something he doesn't have when we're ascribing glory to his name? No. What are we doing? We are agreeing or worshiping or acknowledging that God already is holy and we're giving ourselves to him and acknowledging that. We don't make him holy or we don't make him glorious. He already is inherently glorious. We just choose to respond to him and acknowledge that's who he is. Okay. But what I want to show you is I want to address this statement um, 
in the middle that says, after, after footnote 22 there, in his sight, everything is open and visible. And I want you to focus on this statement. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. Okay. There's a modern heresy that this addresses, but this modern heresy was not around back when the confession in 1689 was written. The, the modern heresy is called open theism. This kind of started around the 70s and 80s. It's called open theism. Some people also may call it process theology, but open theism basically says this. I'll give you the basic nutshell, and then I'll kind of give you a few. Open theism basically says God doesn't know the future. Doesn't know the future. And you say, well, how come, how do you get that? What their argument is, is, Yes, God could know the future if he wanted to, but he purposely limits himself from knowing the future because <coughs> excuse me, he so values the free will of his creation that he's more like an at-risk parent that's given his kids the car keys and not sure what they're going to do with them than he is a king that knows everything that's going to happen. So this is a popular theology. Um, there's been a lot of books written against it by people like John Piper and others. But it's basically saying, the confession says, listen, God has all knowledge. God doesn't learn anything. God's not contingent on anything. God is not, um, everything's open and visible. His knowledge is infallible. Um, nothing, nothing's uncertain for God. Does God sit up there in heaven and like say, wow, that caught me off guard. I didn't see that coming. When Adam and Eve sinned, that catch God off guard. Does anything catch God off guard? Okay. So you guys remember when we studied Daniel last semester? I know it's been a while back, but remember um, Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to him when he went up on the, on the roof and he looked out over and said, look what I've built and look at all that I've done. And God says, well, he struck him with that wolfman disease where he walked around like a cow eating grass and he had long hair and everything. And then it said it happened for sevens and we, we weren't sure if that was seven years or seven months. But then... He came out of that at the end of the days after God had humbled him. What does Nebuchadnezzar say at the end in Daniel 4, 34 through 35? At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, let me just state it this way. God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things. Now, why do I use the word absolutely and meticulously? Those are two different words. What does it mean that God is absolutely sovereign over all things? What does, what does absolute mean? There's nothing over which God, there, there, there's, there, nothing, everything falls under it, right? It's absolute. What does meticulous mean? Precise is not what he does. Precise or every minor down to the most minute of details. So God has sovereignty over all things absolutely. And God has sovereignty over even the most minute things meticulously. And he's working out his will. So nothing, 
God is not contingent on any human. God does not learn knowledge. God does not take in knowledge. God has absolute infallible knowledge of all things, past, present, and future. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from sight, but all are naked and exposed to him of whom we must give an account. Now, how does paragraph two end? We've spent two paragraphs talking about the attributes of God, the attributes of God, all these things about God, his, the I amness, the immutability, the incomprehensibility, the holiness, the love, the justice. What, how does it end? We owe him what? Yeah. Yeah, so the last sentence. Angels and humans owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he's pleased to require of them. Do you guys have a problem with the word owe? Do we owe God this? We owe him worship and obedience. What does the word owe sound like? We owe it to God. We're in debt. It's what? That we're in debt. Okay. I heard you say something, Jennifer. Were you... Same thing? Okay. Yeah. Did God have to create us? No. Can God send all of us to hell if he wanted to? Have we sinned against our creator? So just by virtue of who God is and who we are as his creation, we owe him everything. We owe him worship. We owe him obedience. Now, what's the problem? Why do we not do that? Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't glorify God because we're sinners, but we should. So we were created, every single person was created to glorify and worship God. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We owe God all worship and obedience. And so Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So chapter 2, paragraph 1, eight primary attributes of God. Paragraph 2 is kind of a reiteration of that, but focusing a little bit more on the fact that God knows all things and he's sovereign over all things and we owe him worship. Now we get to paragraph 3, which defines the Trinity. So before we talk about the Trinity, let me ask you a question. Can you fully understand the Trinity? Are you supposed to believe the Trinity? Okay. So there are some things in the Bible we may not fully understand, but we're called to believe them, okay? Now, when you compare, remember I talked that first night about how much of the uh, 1689 Baptist Confession borrows from the Westminster Confession, which is the Presbyterian document? Our document goes into a little bit more detail on the Trinity than, than their document does, which I'm thankful for. Um, when we were going through as elders looking at our old statement of faith, which was the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, there's like maybe one or two sentences on the Trinity in that entire document. And I, I think the Trinity is one of the most important documents because if you get that wrong, you get a lot of things wrong. And so the 1689 provides 
a very good statement that goes back to the ancient creeds and confessions. Actually, more than ancient creeds. Those creeds that we repeat on Sunday mornings on the first Sunday of the month, especially the Nicene Creed and the uh, Chalcedonian Creed. So let's just look at paragraph three. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that, that sentence packs a lot of punch. So what I'm going to share with you tonight, and I'm going to show you that there's three bedrock truths that you have to get about the Trinity. Okay, and, and if you ever come to my new members class and we talk about this, I'll draw a picture. So for those watching on live stream, it may be hard to see. What, for those of you that are math people or geometry people, what is that? It's a triangle. And why are those little marks there? What does that mean? It's an equilateral triangle, meaning all sides are equal. What happens if I take one of the sides out of a triangle? It ceases to be a triangle, okay? All right, what's this? It's like a three-legged bar stool, right? What happens if you take one of the stools out? It falls over. So there are three truths about the, the Trinity. If you take one of them out, you have a heresy. So all three of these truths have to be there. Just the way you take out one of the sides of a triangle, it ceases to be a triangle. You take out one of the, the uh, legs of a three-legged stool, it ceases to hold itself up. If you take one of these truths out, you do not have the biblical definition of a Trinity. Okay? So what are these three bedrock truths about the Trinity? Here's number one. There's only one God, not a plurality of gods. God is a divine and infinite being. Okay, this goes back to the very first statement in the confession. There's only one true and living God. Okay, so there's one God. And the word I want you to understand is one in essence or being. Those are the kind of two words I want you to think. One in essence or being. Okay. We looked at that passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord. There's no other besides me. There's no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. The people may know me from the rising of the sun and from the east. There's none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Okay. This is an easy one for us to get. There's one God. Okay. The denial of one God is the heresy of what we would call polytheism. Or in the ancient culture, when this was kind of being worked out in the three, 300s, 400s, tripartism, which like three gods. The Father's a God, Jesus is a God, the Spirit's a God. They're three different gods, not three different persons that share the same essence of the one God. Okay. So I want, you to get the def I want you to get the language right, okay? There is a distinction between essence and person. Okay? Or being and person. There is one God in being. Okay? But here's truth number two. There are three distinct persons who share the same essence of Godhood, but they're separate in person. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, the Spirit. Okay, so let's just ask a question. Is the Father the same person as the Son? No. no. Is the Son the same person as the Spirit? No. no. 
Is the Spirit the same person as the Father? Okay. No. But is the Father God? Is Jesus God? Is the Spirit God? So all three persons are distinct persons, but they all share the same essence of being God. Okay, does that make sense? Now we know there are three persons because the Bible does teach that. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace, and it goes in a little different order here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, the love of God, there's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But the most famous passage, and I, want, I don't know if you've ever read this closely. We've read it so much. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and to hold them with you always to the end of the age. Okay, do you see three persons there? Now, if you were a grammar student and you were running this through Grammarly, or you had an English teacher, she would count you off for not having good grammar. How many persons are there? Three. Look at the word name. Baptizing them in the name. Should that not be plural? In the names of the fathers? Why is it name singular but three different persons? Why is the grammar driving us to a theology? You got it. It's like, well, I don't know how to say it other than characteristic or or traits or being essence. Essence again, essence. Yeah. yeah, essence and person. There are three distinct persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But they share the same being, and God's being is often tied to His name. Okay. So if you look at the confession, let's go back and look at the confession here and see what it says, because it's going to affirm this, because this is just Trinitarian theology. Second sentence, these three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten to the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay, so they all three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence and not being divided. In other words, it's not like the Father has all of the Godhood and Jesus has some, or like a pie chart where it's one-third, one-third, one-third. The Father has one-third of God, the Son has one-third of God, and the Holy Spirit has one-third of God, and it's broken up like in a pie chart that's cut in thirds. That's not what we're saying. All three persons, and this is truth number three. So there's three distinct persons, and here's truth number three. All three persons of the Trinity are co-eternal and co-equal. Now, what we're saying here, I need to be very clear in what I'm saying here. There's not a hierarchy in the Trinity as far as their essence. It's not like the Father is greater and Jesus is a created being and he's lower. Or the Holy Spirit's like the redheaded stepchild on the bottom of the food chain. Okay, they're all equal. They're all eternal. Now, when you read the Bible, especially the book of John, do you see each three persons of the Trinity assuming different roles in creation. Okay. Who died on the cross? Jesus. Jesus. 
Who predestined us before the foundation of the world? God. The Father. Who was poured out on Pentecost and comes and lives in our heart? Spirit. Spirit. So while they have three different roles in creation and salvation, their essence is eternally co-equal and co-eternal. Meaning Jesus has always existed, the Father's always existed, the Spirit's always existed. There's not a hierarchy. Okay? Now, for the sake of time, because I hey, look at how many more pages I have here. Um, let's turn to John 1. We're going to just, you guys can, we're going to get to all the scriptures that are on your sheet tonight. Let's just turn to John, because John's gospel gives us a great truth, at least about the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and then we can go later on in the gospel of John to find out about, about the Spirit. But you find a lot of Trinitarian theology in the teachings of John, in the gospel of John. And it doesn't just come right out. By the way, the word Trinity does not show up in your Bible, so you can't get a concordance and find the word Trinity. It is a theological term that came about in church history to define what the Bible teaches. Okay, so you, we use the word Trinity because that's historically what's been used, and the Bible teaches it. Okay, so John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, let's just ask some questions. Who is the Word it's speaking about there? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. So in the beginning, so Jesus has always existed, right? In the beginning, Jesus was. Okay, let me tell you what that word was means. It's in a Greek tense in the original language that means it always, always being, continual action. So John purposely uses that verb to show that Jesus has always existed. He always was. Now, there's a Greek word that says, I was at the store yesterday, but if I say I was at the store yesterday, where was I before I was at the store? I was somewhere else, right? Okay, I wasn't at the store. The way that it's used here was, you can translate it literally, Jesus was always continually was or existing, okay? So that's the first thing you see there. The second thing you see, the word was with God. Okay, do you see two distinct persons there? The word and God. So was Jesus, is Jesus the same person as the Father? No, there's two distinct persons there, right? The word and the Father. Are they together? Do they share the same Godhood? Yeah, because this is the word was God. And the word was God. Okay? So there's an ancient heresy called Arianism, named after a guy named Arius, that you see modern day Arianism is like what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe, that Jesus is a created being. He was the first created being. He's lower than God the Father. Um, he has divine attributes, but he does not share equality with God, and he's not fully God. What does John 1.1 1, 1 say? Jesus has always existed as God, in essence. But is Jesus the same person as the Father? No, because he's with the Father. How can you be with yourself? Can I say, I was with myself yesterday at the store. You think I'm a little weird. I was with Don yesterday at the store. Okay, there's two people. Okay, there are two persons in verse 1. Who are the two persons in verse 1? God and the Word. Jesus has always existed. 
Jesus and the Father are two distinct persons, but Jesus has always existed as God. Not as the same person as the Father, but sharing the essence of God. Okay, so that's kind of the second thing there. Jesus is not the same person as the Father, but shares intimate fellowship with the Father. So Jesus has this relationship where he is a distinct person from the Father. Let me give you an example of what a, there's a heresy called modalism. Is that on your sheet there? <coughs> is that next? Is that next? Okay, there's another heresy called modalism. So Arianism basically says Jesus is not fully God. He's a created being, he's, he's lower than God. Modalism basically says there's not three distinct persons, but there's one God playing three different roles or existing in three different modes. So they say like, God the Father was God in the Old Testament. Jesus was God in the New Testament. Now it's the Holy Spirit. It's one God playing three roles, not three distinct persons. So let me ask you a question. Those of you that know Batman, I should know Batman personally. Okay. So Bruce Wayne. <coughs> Bruce Wayne is one man, right? He's one person. But does he play two roles? During the day, he's a billionaire, playboy. And at night, he's the dark knight that wears a cape and goes around fighting crime. He's one man that puts on a mask and plays two different roles. But he's still one man. That's modalism. They would say God is one God, but he plays three different roles. Sometimes he puts on the mask of the Father. Sometimes he puts on the mask of Jesus. Sometimes he puts on the mask of, of the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy. There are three distinct persons. And the greatest play, place you can see that is at Jesus' baptism. So Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay, let me ask you a question. Who was physically there in the water getting baptized? Jesus. Jesus. Who descended like a dove? The Spirit. And whose voice spoke from heaven? Unless Jesus was a ventriloquist and threw his voice and made a sound. So, voice, this is my beloved son. So in Jesus' baptism, do you have three distinct persons there? Yes. You have the Father speaking, you have Jesus living and baptized, and you have the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. It's not one person playing three roles. Now, is the Father God? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes. Do they all share the same essence as God? Yes. But are they three distinct persons? Yes. Are those three distinct persons co-equal and co-eternal? Yes. So those are the three truths. There's only one God, in essence. There are three distinct persons within that one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and those three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Okay? And I want to show you the very end there in John 14... What does it say? John 4, 1, 4, 14 through 18. I want to just focus. Yeah, let's just look at John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. All right, this is what I want to focus on. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay. 
Jesus came in the flesh to share or tell the whole story of God's plan for our salvation. Now look at verse 18 very carefully. No one has ever seen God. Remember Moses tried? God said, you can't. So no one has ever seen God the Father, right? Pay attention to your words there. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. Now that's interesting. The only God who's at the Father's side. Who's the God who's at the Father's side? Jesus. Jesus. So is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Father God? Yes. Has anybody ever seen God the Father? Yes. Have people seen Jesus? Yes. Why? He came in the flesh. Okay, but look at that last phrase. He has made him known. So John's last phrase there, he has made him known. Literally, he exegeted God. It's a rare Greek word, means to communicate fully, telling the whole story, or giving the details. So when I do sermon prep, I do something called exegesis. I discover the meaning, I go into the original language, and I try to come on Sunday and explain what I've learned and make it known to you. What is Jesus doing about God the Father? We can't see God the Father because of all those attributes that we saw. But Jesus has come in the flesh to make the Father known to us. So when Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. So we can't see God the Father because he's spirit. But he sent his Son in the flesh so that Jesus could make him known. And Jesus died on the cross and rose again in a body. He's back in heaven now at the right hand of the Father in a body. He's coming back in a body. But who did Jesus send to live in us? The Holy Spirit. So it says there in the confession, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Son. So John 15, 26, when the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, this is a lot, a lot of stuff tonight. But I like the way the confession ends because it ends with something very important again. Our response. What's our response? And I'm going to take you all the way up to the time tonight again because we're packed. So look at the very last paragraph in the very last sentence. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. Fellowship and comforting dependence. So we worship the triune God and seek intimate fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. So fellowship. We wholly depend on the triune God and we find our comfort in each person of the God. Now, I'm going to plug something here um, that I think would be helpful. So two books. The first book is by John Owen. John Owen's book is called Communion with God. It was written in the 1600s. <clears throat> and John Owen, basically, that was probably one of the most profound books I've ever read. He wrote a masterful book on, on each person of the Trinity and how you can have a relationship with each person of the Trinity. So communion with God the Father, communion with God the Son, communion with God the Holy Spirit. He was the influence for me to write my book. Your Identity in the Trinity. So I, I plug John Owen's book because it's masterful. But my book, trying to take 
what John Odom did and like masterful and, and kind of just distill it down in what's your response in fellowship and comfort with each person of the Trinity? So chapters four, five, and six in my book, your identity in the Father and how you respond to him, your identity in the Son and how you respond to the Son and your identity in the Holy Spirit and how you respond to him. So I don't want this to be an abstraction tonight where we learn this theology and it's kind of neat and it's like mind-blowing. Ultimately, the confession is leading us to say this should always lead to worship, it should lead to dependence, it should lead to comfort, it should lead to assurance. So God's not an abstraction. He is worthy of our worship, and we are to come to him, and we owe him everything. We owe him a life of fellowship and communion and, 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 um, and worship. So that's all I've got tonight. We've got two minutes. I'm going to take a swig of this hard stuff. Reese, you look like you have a question. No, I just... So... Um, he, I should have asked you back when you were talking about it. You lost it? So I'm kind of curious what your movie The Shack is. Don't like The Shack. I wrote a whole review about the book The Shack when it came out. Um, actually, the guy that writes it is actually doesn't believe in Jesus as the only way. Um, it's it, all the heresies that are here are in the shack, um, and so I would I would tell people to avoid the shack at all <coughs> costs. That's just if you want my honest opinion, that's no, that's did, that's so. what I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, it came out in two thousand eight. I wrote a. It is in the newspaper, actually, Sentinel. You can probably go back in the archives. But I wrote a review of it in two thousand eight. I did a podcast episode when the movie came out. And, but, um, yeah, there's just a lot of bad, bad theology in the shack. And the guy that wrote it, he now is a progressive Christian that doesn't believe in hell. Doesn't, I mean, he's just, like, way off the reservation as far as just basic theology. Now, can, can you worship Jesus as an ideology? Like, I look at some of these progressive ch churches that are coming up where they say that they're worshiping Jesus. Right. But really what... They're not. They're not even close. Yeah. Like, they they use that term. They use... The mind the crying. The yeah, the... Imagery and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it has nothing to do with... Yeah, they... We, without getting, like, Richard Rohr and some of those guys, without getting into all of their stuff, their Jesus is a different Jesus of the Bible. Um, they've created a different type... So when we get to who Jesus is, so I'll just give the short answer. You must worship Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible, and he reveals himself as prophet, priest, and king. As the ultimate prophet, he is the word of God, and he declares the word of God, and so you must believe what he says. Number two, as the priest, he's the one that not only offered, does the sacrifice, but he offered himself. So he is the, the ultimate final sacrifice that died for our sins. So you have to believe in his authority as the prophet. You have to believe in his sacrifice for us as the priest, but you also have to submit to him as king. And king means he has the right to be the Lord of your life. 
So the wording we would use would be, you have to trust him as Savior and Lord. Progressive Christians don't have those categories. It's more of a philosophical concept. He was a great moral teacher that taught a lot of cool things, but um, he didn't. He you know he wasn't God in the flesh. He didn't literally die on the cross and rise again. He didn't take God's wrath on our place. It's it's more of an ideology than it is a literal person come in the flesh who is God. That's that's the short answer to a, a deep question. All right, we've gone past time. Let me pray. Father, thank you for blowing our minds tonight. We are so thankful, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.